Hey there. Liz Skinner from the Investment News editorial team wanted me to let you know that advisory firms can still register to be considered for the 2021 Investment News Best Places to Work for Financial Advisors. She's extended the deadline to November 13th. That's coming up right next week. You can go to inbestplacestowork.com to register for free. And on March 1st, we'll release a new investment news list of best places to work. Hey there, Jeff Benjamin here with the Investment News Podcast, along with my colleague and co-host Bruce Kelly. This week, we've got a couple of interesting and special guests for you for our wonderful topics. Nicole Casperson, our uh, intrepid technology reporter, tech nerd, as she likes to be called. After that, we have Todd Rosenblum, ETF and mutual fund guru analyst with CFRA. Hey, Bruce, how's it going? I'm I'm great, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm still eating Halloween candy here. I'm I'm moving up a weight class, so uh, unless I get any more trick or treaters, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, expect me pudgier the next time you see me in person. Lucky you! Oh, come on, you're always so svelte <laughs> and handsome. Give me a break. <laughs> True that. So I wanted to talk with Nicole specifically, and first, Nicole, how are you doing today? I'm doing. Doing very well. Thanks, guys, for bringing me back on the pod. Happy to be a minor distraction from election madness. So thanks. <laughs> ha- happy to do this. Do the standing in. That's great. <laughs> you are a trooper. I just a little bit of information popped up on one of our competitors about UBS and making some changes to their robo or semi robo offering. When I was writing that up, and you know, I dug into the form ADV. We got, we got the information. They're reducing client minimums to invest in these platforms, UBSs, from 10 grand to open an account, five grand. My thinking was, you know, you have, we, Fidelity did some changing, I think, that you reported about in their robo over the summer. So if I'm a young investor, if I'm an investor and I think robo, I think Betterment, but all these big firms are coming out with robos too. So is this just kind of nifty marketing by Wall Street? to glom something out of Silicon Valley like like Betterment? Or is this actually a, a real draw? That was my question. But if you want to start or respond with something else based on your reporting, please start where you think is appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, it is really a marketing move to funnel customers from basically the banking side of the business to the investing side, right? So firms today are seeing robo-advisors like Betterment and Wealthfront thrive, especially uh, in this pandemic environment. And so they're seeing RoboAdvice as this new way to engage with young investors early on and then ramp up to a full service offering as their wealth grows. And so one way they've been doing this offering, of course, is by offering free digital financial planning tools to complement their existing low-cost RoboAdvisor. So as you said, what's interesting about the UBS move is that Fidelity did something semi-similar. Essentially, they dropped the annual robo-advisory fee for Fidelity investments. That was over the summer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Over the summer, we reported on that. Yeah. To zero on accounts with less than $10,000. And all of these firms, all of the folks that have done similar things have told me in my reporting that this is 100% a move to get younger clients interested in their investing products. So it's really just a matter of increasing their wallet share into a market that really folks like Betterment, 
or Wealthfront have really taken the majority share of. Yeah, you know what's interesting though, when you think of UBS or Merrill Lynch or Wells Fargo, right? Who all have, I think, pretty similar offerings, right? Here and pricing. The for years, 10, 15, 20 years, Wall Street has been telling its advisors, first of all, don't chase the little guy, you know? Mm-hmm. Chase the big guy because why? Well, the big guy is the most profitable. <laughs> Don't chase someone with a hundred grand in assets. Chase a, a guy with a million in assets. You know that's what Wall Street banks want you to do if you're a advisor at Merrill Lynch or Wells Fargo or UBS or Morgan Stanley. That's why people go independent in some ways. You know, if you go to LPL, you can chase whomever you want as long as you mm-hmm. pay LPL its fees. But um, you're really working for the house, so they want you to chase the big guy. So they put in all kinds of policies and procedures where they said, okay, if you want to chase the little guy, including opening accounts for clients, sons and daughters, or grandchildren, we're not going to pay you for those. That's going to be free work. That's not even counted. That's kind of crazy, (laughs) but all right. Well, they really worked. They wanted to dissuade people, right, from focusing on somebody with 10 grand or 25 grand. And a lot of these guys started out in the business in the 80s and the 90s, chasing those kinds of clients and selling them mutual funds and annuities. So it was almost antithetical, but it's just my thinking about this. It's it's finally the big banks have found out a way where, and it's insulting too. It's, (laughs) It's insulting to the advisor. Don't work with your client's son or daughter. And it's interesting. Maybe they find they figured out kind of a decent way where the advisor can have that conversation. Uh, appropriately with these families. Yeah. With with Bank of America, I think is a great example, right? Because they rolled out a free financial planning tool called Life Plan, right? And we reported on that. And right. when I spoke with them, they straight up told me that not only will the tool attract more clients into the Merrill Lynch side of the business, which is completely their intent, but it also becomes a gateway for clients who may not currently meet asset minimums. So Everything that you just said, where it's always been the play to focus on the high net worth investor, now they're not trying always. to right, right. It's but now just they're evolved trying, that way, right? But now they're they're thinking about you know maybe if there's investors out there that don't necessarily meet the asset minimums or maybe aren't attractive to advisors today, they can start the conversation via you know robo advisors or low account minimums, free financial planning tools. Those investors can eventually be turned into loyal customers for tomorrow. So that's the play here. Well, the one that really has the, and no pun intended, edge on that, of (laughs) course, is Merrill Edge. They launched 10 years ago, I think. That's right when when Merrill Lynch was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, like Lehman Brothers, or teetering on the the edge of seeing its stock price go go to $1 a share because of the the credit crisis and all the bad paper, uh, the bad bonds that they had on their books. They needed a bailout. They had to be bought. They got acquired by Bank of America and Bank of America. I don't know the inner workings of it, but one of the one of the best things to come out of that merger, really, that acquisition for Bank of America was Merrill Edge, because that's a real powerhouse in the business, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then if you think about what they did with the rollout of Life Plan, the, the free financial planning tool, that now gives 3 million clients access to Bank of America advisors. So uh, any consumer that is banking with Bank of America has access to LifePlan. Say they're playing around with their financial planning, kind of a do-it-yourself model. And then they go, oh, wait, well, you know, I'm actually interested in this. I don't understand this or that. They can, you know, have free access to a Bank of America advisor. 
And what that does is it, the hope for Bank of America and Merrill Lynch is that that creates a path for those clients to gain interest in investing through Merrill Edge. Have you so looked just, at that? Uh, have you uh, played around with that life plan? No, I haven't played around with life plan yet. I, I do have the Fidelity Go app because I did want to play around with that. And that one's pretty that one's pretty fun. But I haven't tried life plan yet. Yeah, I'd be interested down the road when you start doing a little research on these things, talking about the functionality and the and the bells and the whistles on all these things. Right, right. I think that I think that really out of all of this, one of the most important things to identify in, you know, the technology realm is really this trend of firms coupling banking alongside investment services. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that we're going to see start to see that line blur more because it really is the best way for these older like companies. Oh yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll make maybe instead of blur, they'll start to you know solidify that line even even more. But yeah, it's it's only a matter of time before these you know older legacy companies are really trying to match with fresh robos like Betterment and Wealth. Well, well, some of the big bank-owned wirehouses they make it part of your compensation to open up different types of banking accounts and have banking relationships with with your clients. And those people have told me, we really want to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say <laughs> that's on the flip, how it goes. Right. On, 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 so, the, on the flip they're side. They're looking to make these people as generate as much revenue and profit, right? Per yeah. advisor right. as they suck can. Them dry. And exactly. the way that, not suck them dry, but just kind of <laughs> boost them up, you know, okay. first and then wring from them as much revenue they can. And, and having both the the investment side and the banking side in a in a technology platform is really cost effective. Right, you know? hey, Nicole. I I have a question. I like I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the pressure that these wirehouses are now putting on companies like Betterment by giving out access to these these robos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there is pressure because they have that banking consumer business already so well established, right? You know, if I'm banking with Bank of America or JP Morgan Chase, like why not just, and all of my money's there, why not just use whatever offering that they have for a digital advice platform? You know, I think that folks like Betterment and Wealthfront and Wealthsimple and other robos out there, I think that they try to hinge on the fact that they are, they're fresh, they're new, they're fintech. And that type of branding and messaging, and not to mention Betterment, Wealthfront, Robos like LFS, you know, they also majorly focus on ESG investing or social impact investing, right. which is so important to the younger investor, especially in this environment. So I think they try to leverage those branding aspects because branding, as you should probably know, is so important to the millennial, the Gen Z investor, just kind of getting their foot in the door. I mean, I know Betterment offers a checking and savings account as well. So does LFS. So it's really, it's almost like a battle of branding at this point, if you think about it, because I think you can have one or two sides. You can have the millennial that's like, eh, well, my parents set me up with an account with Wells Fargo, so I'm just going to keep that going until I change my mind. Or you have the young millennial Gen Z investor that's like, but Betterment and Elevest have awesome branding and they're fun and they have apps and all this cool gamification to their stuff. I want to I be on there. So, well, mm-hmm. it's no wonder Fidelity cut its prices right down to zero. I guess was it for the five five grand or ten grand, and then three bucks a month after that, and then thirty five basis points after that, whatever the tier was. Right. I mean, you, you absolutely about, you know because right, there's right. competition. 
Right. It's it's the freemium trend, as we like to put it, which actually begs the question if these free offerings decrease the attractiveness of paying for premium planning services. But as these young investors, once you get them their foot in the door with your brand, and as they start to gain more wealth throughout their life, you know, if you have their loyalty already, then you almost have it in the bag, right? Because they're going to, as their wealth continues on, there's going to be no problem for them to just say, hey, you know what, you know, I do want to pay for those premium planning services. I do want the human advisor that, a ro- like in the elements of that, that a robo can't give me. So I think that that's kind of what that's the plan and what we're going to see. That's great. Thank you so much, Nicole. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Honored to be here. <laughs> we're honored to have you. Thank you. All right, and now for our second segment, we're going to talk to Todd Rosenbluth, good source of mine, the director of mutual fund and ETF research at CFRA. How you doing, Todd? Good to be with you, Jeff and Bruce. Thanks for the time. Thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks, Todd. Thanks for being here. Another Upper West Sider in Manhattan. I like it. Yeah, we want. We want. I wanted to talk about semi-transparent ETFs. It's something that has kind of hit the stage this year. 2020. What a time for something different. And the the story that I wrote earlier this week about Fred Alger Asset Management, they're planning a couple of these funds early this early next year. And I thought it'd be great for you, Todd, as an expert in this area to kind of, you know, lay the groundwork for us. The the first semi-transparent ETFs came earlier this year with I, I think it was um the American funds? American Century, I'm sorry. What is the appeal of these funds and how does how what what's the deal with semi-transparent? Why do fund companies need semi-transparent ETFs when they could just do a fully transparent ETF? Or why do advisors need semi-transparent ETF? Right, advisors are the the biggest buyers of ETFs. So yeah. So well, let's try to tackle that in a few different ways. So why are asset managers going into the space? And then perhaps we can come back to. The other follow-up of does anybody want these? What's demand for it? What's the use case for these products from more an advisor standpoint? So we're about $5 trillion of US listed ETFs. We're 26, 27 years into it. It's a relatively concentrated market with iShares, Vanguard, State Street, and Invesco, those four firms with, with well over 80% and counting of the overall assets. And so And a lot of the money that has gone into ETFs has gone there from shifting away from actively managed, underperforming, somewhat expensive mutual funds into lower cost, often index-based, but not always ETFs. And so some of the firms that were true active managers that only offered mutual funds have missed out on that growth. They've seen money walk out the door. They haven't put up as much of a fight or there's not much they can do about investors leaving on going for something cheaper and better. And so these actively managed equity ETFs are a way for them to participate in the ETF market, very similar to the way they're participating in running a strategy with their mutual funds, but with some of the benefits from an ETF perspective. It can be cheaper to run. You can market the funds to a growing audience that is increasingly using ETFs, and yet you don't have to be fully transparent. We're going to use the word transparent a lot today, probably, but you don't have to show your full portfolio 
on a daily basis to the investment community, but can actually more protect your intellectual property. Why is that an advantage, Todd? Yeah. So if you're running active strategies, you as an asset manager want to be able to know and only you know when you're going to zig, the market is zagging and vice versa. So we've had certain volatility heading into the election and post-election day. And active managers could be buying or selling as a result of that. They don't want to tell everybody what they're buying and selling until afterwards, because then the price of the underlying securities could be impacted. They also don't want to let their full the full portfolio be known because it'll give a sense as to where they might be going in the future. And so mutual funds, the disclosure happens on a quarterly basis and with a lag. Asset managers up until late last year did not have the option to offer ETFs with the same level of transparency as a mutual fund. If you wanted to offer an active equity ETF, like where the Davis funds, for example, did, you had to show everybody what was in your portfolio as of November 4th. That, that was not appealing to certain asset managers. How did that get changed? Through regulation. It's been long in the effort, but the first structure for a firm called Presidian was approved. And then subsequent months later, we saw four other structures. The structure is, is somewhat less important, I think, from an advisor and an investor perspective. But it's the, it's the chassis, so to speak, as to how they, being the asset manager, can provide enough information so that the ETF can function, but not enough information so they don't show all of their hands. And so Presidian has licensed that technology to firms like American Century, other firms like Fidelity and Tiro Price, who have strong brands of their own, uh, have developed their own structure and technology. And in the case of Fidelity, is, is looking to license that out as well. But as what Jeff was alluding to earlier, Jeff, what you said, this was a way to enter the market. T. Rowe Price had missed out on the first 26 plus years of ETF development. They now have four equity ETFs following strategies that I think the investment community is quite familiar with. T. Rowe Price, Blue Chip, growth being one example, dividend growth, equity income. These are popular mutual funds. There's now ETF versions of them. So that's certainly appealing from... And they're being run almost identical ways. That's appealing from Tiro Price's perspective as a way to enter the market with some of their flagship strategies. Mm -hmm. Is this gaining traction? I mean, are, are flows going into these things and are the perform is the performance kind of enough to get the attention of financial advisors? So I'll take that. I, I, I will come back to the first part I never or the earlier question I don't think I got to, but I'll, I'll, we'll make sure to come back to it. But yes, they've, we now have more than a dozen of these from, I think, five different firms that are now offering this, American Century, Zero Price, Fidelity, Natixis, and Clearbridge are the firms that are offering these strategies. There has not been as much investor interest. It's actually disappointing to me. I had had higher hopes. I think I was quoted in your article a year ago with higher hopes, worth looking in the mirror at this time of year. And saying I was, you know, I was too early. We'll, we'll put it politely for this. The largest of the products have about two hundred million in assets each. Oh, that's small. It's relatively small. Now, they first came out at the end of the first quarter. These products from American Century. Some of the products that we're talking about from Natixis came out in September. Advisors and investors 
will often want to wait, especially with it's an active strategy, even if it's an active strategy they're familiar with, but an active new structure. But to your second part of your of your question, Jeff, the irony is that they're performing relatively well, the ones that have, have enough history. And again, we don't have a lot of history to go off of. But American Century's growth product, FDG, happened to come out just at the bottom of the market. So it's gotten a nice tailwind by being concentrated. But it's outperforming the iShares Russell 1000 growth ETF, which is akin to the Russell 1000 growth, which is the benchmark that's there. Fidelity Blue Chip Growth, again, another prominent strategy, is outperforming the Russell 1000 growth through its time period. Fidelity's Blue Chip Value, obviously a value-oriented strategy, is, is overall not gained that much. But that strategy has outperformed the iShares Russell 1000 value. Now, these are very short periods of time, six months or so, and in some cases, three or four months. That's probably not enough time to demonstrate performance success. But I would have thought investors that were fans of these overall strategies would see the opportunity of using a more tax-efficient manner, a cheaper product, one that they have liquidity behind. And maybe, and this is a big maybe, that now we're at the tax loss harvestings time and some of these value-oriented mutual funds are sitting, they have struggled. You could perhaps swap this out for an ETF and, and maybe get, and maybe, again, I'm not a tax expert, but maybe get be able to do a tax swap on some of these strategies and get the same proven management team just with a, a different structure. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that more money hasn't gone into these funds because they are going to be cheaper, I think, than actively managed mutual funds. And if the performance is there, but I think there's a couple of stumbling blocks and you correct me if I'm wrong, Todd. One is that these don't have long track records, as you've already touched on, even though the, the, maybe the strategy has a, has a long track record. And the other thing is that these are still a little bit in the unknown category. And this has been a year of distractions for everyone, especially those in the financial, well, not especially, including those in the financial services industry. So, you know, maybe financial advisors just haven't had time to bone up on these things and figure out what the heck they are. Yeah, this is an almost impossible time, I would imagine, to market a new type of fund or ETF or annuity or something like that. It's, there's no, I mean, I think people are starting to go back to the office now. It's the beginning of November in limited ways. People are opening up again, but for six, seven, eight months, there hasn't been any travel. There hasn't been any activity. There hasn't been any schmoozing. There hasn't, we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, right? There hasn't been any meetings and the like. So how do you get around that? Todd? Well, that, that I, I agree with you is a challenge. So when the first of the products came out, as we were all learning to work from home, you know, the first products launched on March 31st, and then subsequent products have obviously all come to market with the firms, you know, their wholesalers and distributors. That's a challenge to be able to do that. And because these need to be listed on their website, in fact, if you go to Fidelity's website, for example, it specifically has it making it as obvious as possible is that this is not a traditional ETF. There's something different about it. And so it's understandable that people are not looking to do the same homework that's there. In general, also, is that ETFs need to get approved on brokerage platforms. 
and there's due diligence that's needed. That's a challenge. How, not yeah, how tough has that been for some of these, for some of these uh, fund managers? It, it's a challenge in, in two ways. One, if you're a new entrant to the ETF market in the case of Tiro Price, so American Century had existing ETFs, fully transparent products, as did Fidelity. Uh, Natixis had a very small ETF presence, but perhaps, but so they may not have been as well known. If you're Fidelity, then there's less homework that needs to be done on who you are because you've got active fixed income ETFs. And of course, you have Fidelity's own platform to be able to market on, which is, uh, to, again, a bit surprising that these products are not as that big. Uh, the Fidelity Blue Chip Growth ETF is, is just over 100 million in assets because they certainly have shelf space on their platform to be able to do that. But it's a challenge. And then it's also a challenge because and you guys would know this better than I do, but from a regulatory perspective as an advisor, if there is a cheaper alternative to an existing product you are recommending to your clients versus the existing mutual fund structure, you know, is it approved? Is that allowed? Is that compliant in a fiduciary perspective is, I think, to be determined. So the fact that some of these products are intentionally positioning themselves as either clones or analog versions of proven strategies is actually a, a ties the hands to some extent of the of the brokerage firm in getting these approved right away because you you need to be able to justify why you're putting clients in a more expensive mutual fund product as well and so these are not as broadly adopted and approved on platforms to my understanding again just for the listener's sake at CFRA we're an independent research company rating ETFs we are rating these ETFs we don't have those same thresholds but some of our wealth management clients can't do anything if even if we had a favorable rating on the ETF so this is a unique time to be launching products it likely is going to be 2021 and beyond before we see greater adoption and i think there will be adoption there are advisors that want to run active model or active asset allocation models that they didn't have ETF choices to consider. There are advisors that have long worked with Euro price that now have options to be able to do so. I think it's going to come. It's just taking longer and it's perhaps not going to be as successful the first couple of years as, as I had originally anticipated. Where do you think this is all headed, Todd? Do you, I mean, you know, we're seeing these things planned and launched all over the place. Well, or at least planned all over the place. Do you think everybody with an actively managed mutual fund is going to have one of these semi-transparent ETFs in their lineup? So I think that it behooves the asset managers to have an ETF plan. Whether that plan includes a semi-transparent ETF, which is perhaps the easiest thing for them to do without having to deviate from existing strategies, be able to run a clone version of it and offer it an ETF wrapper. And whether you charge, bring the mutual fund pricing down to match that or not, I think you should and be more competitive, but I don't know if that's the case. Whether you want to go the route that others have gone and in some cases had success with a fully transparent strategy where there's has been more adoption, there's less education about what's different about it. And of course, I know you probably have talked about ARC ETFs. That's not a mutual fund firm, but they're very successful. But this is what Davis has done. JP Morgan has also launched fully transparent active equity ETFs. 
Or do you want to launch index-based versions and smart beta versions of some of the strategies? This is something that Janus has done. Janus is as small and mid-cap oriented strategies that are ETF versions. The pendulum is swinging, has swung towards ETFs. It's not likely to swing away from ETFs. And so, especially as we're in an environment in 2020, we are going to see the impact of outflows for equity products because the performance has not been that strong. So the asset bases are going to come down. It's going to be much harder to charge premium fees for mutual funds while money is walking out the door. So I'm sure it's a long answer to, I really think we're going to see more of these. I think this is an appropriate structure for asset managers to do and to license the technology from Presidian or others. And I think we're going to see more in 2021, even though we haven't seen that much of a success in asset gathering. The products have not broken. And that was a fear, I think, when something new comes out. These are trading reasonably well from a, a, a spread perspective. They're performing reasonably well. I think it's inevitable we see more of these products. Right. What do you see as the outcome for actively managed mutual funds in light of all of this money moving toward ETFs? So I think we're going to see the trend continue. There's going to be some, for, you know, there's going to be investors that want active management that are comfortable in the mutual fund structure and inertia you know, is, is a very strong force. I think we're going to see money still stay for some of these strategies. But cheaper is a way to go. I think we've talked about beforehand, Jeff, in, in, in some of your great articles, that we have seen consolidation happen both in mutual fund structures as well as asset managers, and there's more to come to try to bring costs down. But the days of being a middle-tier performance mutual fund and having loyal investors because they were in the product for a while... There still will be people, but over time, that money is going to move to something cheaper or more liquid in the case of ETFs, other than when it's in a retirement program. Yeah. yeah there's stickiness to, to some of this, but it, it, it's hard to not be part of the ETF market. Right. The, Todd, you, you follow this space, mutual funds and ETFs, better than anyone I know of. Thank you. Has, has anything surprised you yet with these semi-transparent ETF launches or filings? Is any, did you say anything and like, wow, I didn't expect that company to be in this space? Well, what's, what has surprised me, again, going back to my expectation they'd be more successful, I had presumed, and perhaps naively, that asset managers would have come better prepared with money to work. And again, maybe this will happen over time, but there's a lot of money in fund-to-fund strategies that these firms offer. T. Rowe Price and American Century and Fidelity all have balanced fund-to-fund strategies. It seemed logical to me that they would use their own money to improve the liquidity and come out of the gate relatively strong. So I'm disappointed when I see some of these products that have been around for a few months that still have $20 million or less in assets under management this thus far. Why are they so reluctant, Todd, do you think? I don't have a good answer. I, I have tried oh, to- come get, on. Take a swing. I think there's a fear out there that, that 
is a, an acronym that one of my friends in the industry, Eric Balchunas, has coined of BYOA. So bring your own assets instead of bring your own, I'll call beverage, uh, for the sake of, of this conversation. And that it would be viewed you know, in an unfavorable way if they brought their own money into these strategies. I think investors would be happy that there was liquidity of these products and it would show success. So I don't have a good answer on why they haven't done that other than they think that there's... Well, hedge funds, you put your own money in a hedge fund, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's, I mean, who knows what regulation though these guys must operate under? I mean, if you're allowed to take that kind of a plunge, that kind of a commitment. I, it may be that there need, the products need to have aged enough for that to happen and be right. around. What I am, I'll do the pleasant. I just know that about hedge funds because I watch billions, you know. So. <laughs> what, what, I, what, I, what I will do on the pleasant surprise, so I'll give them credit on this, in particular, T. Rowe Price, since they didn't have an ETF presence beforehand, unlike the other firms, T. Rowe Price didn't take a, a dip their toe into the water by launching in a semi-transparent ETF of something that wasn't well known. They've taken some of their flagship products, again, Tiro Price Blue Chip Growth, Tiro Price Dividend Growth, Equity Income, and Growth. You know, when I last looked, these collectively had hundreds of billions of dollars right. collectively in it. And so there's a cannibalization risk to that. If, if, if they're successful, they may be successful in, in robbing Peter to pay Paul and, and obviously put more of a spotlight on what they hold. Even though everyone can see the mutual funds every quarter, people don't pay as much attention to the holdings of a mutual fund as an ETF. So I'll give them credit that they're coming out with their proven strategies instead of just dipping their toe into the water. I'd like to see more assets, as I'm sure so would they. Well, that's encouraging. You know, if it's if it's uh, ETFs are more cost efficient, really, for advisors and for their clients, right? So that is a good move. And T. Rowe is, is one of the most respected fund companies on the street. I think at any, you go into any brokerage house and say that. Yeah, they're just, it's a, it shouldn't be, but it is a different world operating in the ETF space than the mutual fund space. It, it, you know, from a, in some cases at the brokerage level, it's who you're talking to that's differently. You know, the distribution is different. The marketing efforts are different a bit. Yeah, Tiro Price's brand should help them get right investor attention, and that's again what I had hoped when they came out. And they, you know, in, in all fairness, they launched their products in August. You know, we're we're early. You know, their products are three months old. Oh come on! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> August. I mean, we were all trying to figure out what the heck was going on in August. I can't even, you know. Yeah, I I think what happened is I remember. You wrote about that, Jeff, right? Didn't right. you? Or? Right. Yeah. But yeah. what, what uh, you know, these things were widely expected to just flood the market in early 2020, because at the end of last year, we all saw them coming. People paying attention knew they were coming. I think they were delayed. I don't know. I'm assuming there were some delays related to the pandemic and people having other things, big, giant companies having 95% of their workforce, you know, working. Well, there's always delays. Pandemic. Right. In any kind of investment launch or anything, there's always right. a delay. So, so I think that, you know, they, they probably expected a lot more momentum, but because they had the things were moving down the, the assembly line, they just put them out there and they said, well, they're out there. Maybe we're, we're hoping for the best. We're not wholesaling and marketing the way that we normally would. You know, we've got them on track now and that's what companies are kind of doing. But 
I still, I mean, I wrote a cover story about this a year ago or something like that, that they, I, I just didn't see the appetite there among financial advisors and financial advisors are the, the, the primary buyer for their clients of ETFs. So I just, you know, I like to think that these giant companies are smart and know what they're doing, but I just, I, I just don't see where they're expecting all this appetite to come from. Todd, I mean, what, like I said, I, I don't know. I'm assuming there's an appetite there. It will come, but it, I mean, you know, can, can these fund companies or are they willing to wait till these things have three year track records before financial advisors start allocating to them or, or what? So I think the decision, again, using Tiro Price or using Fidelity or American Century, for them to have chosen to enter the ETF market this way, I don't think was done lightly. I think while they perhaps have a longer term plan than, than I was aware of, and, and so the, the goal was to get these out in 2020 and then ramp up the efforts in 2021 and 22, perhaps for it. I think they're going to be patient with these products. I think you've written about as well that ETF closures have been increasing for products that have limited assets. The typical threshold is 50 million and something that's been around for a couple of years and has less than 50 million is it ripe to be headed to the ETF graveyard. That certainly might happen and the firms might choose a different strategy. But I, I think we're certainly going to see these products get to three years to establish a track record that people use the way they look at mutual funds and and hope that it that the education has increased by then. And I think we're going to see more of them. Same way we've got too many mutual funds that are all chasing after the same assets. There'll, there'll likely be too many of these products before there's enough education. But I think we're in this for the longer, I think they're in this for the longer haul and the three of us are in this for the longer haul to be talking about them. All right. Well, on that note, We'll have it to be continued. Todd, thank you for being here and joining us and uh, bringing your, your insights to uh, the Investment News Podcast. That was My great, pleasure. Todd. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. So that's it for this week. That's another episode of the Investment News Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Of course, this is going to be posted every Monday. We want to, first of all, thank our special guest, Todd Rosenbluth, the ETF guy from CFRA. And we also want to say a special thank you to Nicole Casperson, Investment News' very own technology reporter. And of course, we want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. The Investment News podcast is posted every Monday at investmentnews.com. And you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave a review for us on Apple. Give us five stars, guys. And follow us on Spotify. And I love that Spotify. If you got a question, hit Jeff Benjamin up on Twitter at Benji Ryder is his handle. And me, I'm Bruce Kelly. I'm at BD News Guy. Thanks for listening again. And we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>